Okay, Kia ora, koutou katoa, and welcome to this session of the Marlborough Book Festival. Um, my name is uh, James Healy, I'm from uh, Dog Point Vineyard, um, one of the original hamper assistant sponsors of, the, uh, of this book festival, and I can tell you that we're, ex we're, we're extremely pleased to be part of it. We think it's an excellent addition um, to just what happens here. In, in this region. It is uh, Dog Point's pleasure to welcome Kate Goldie and Lloyd Jones to the Marlborough Book Festival. Uh, they're two acclaimed authors who really need uh, no introduction and uh, both of you, we're delighted to welcome you here in Marlborough uh, to this you, festival. Thank, Thank you very much. <clears throat> well, thanks very much, James. Um, uh, Tina Koto Katoa. Warm greetings, everybody. While James is just there, I have to acknowledge just how fantastic this festival has been and how generous this local community has been in, in, in treating us. You know, mm. wonderful. Fabulous. Um, James made a mistake. He popped over to Dog Point yesterday and asked, um, is everything okay? Do you need anything? And I preposterously said, oh, is there any more wine? <laughs> <laughs> and off, off he went. <laughs> and anyway... So, um, look, this session, um, this is Kate, obviously, I'm Lloyd. Um, this session is um, hatched from a conversation I had with uh, Kate uh, a couple of months ago. We were talking about books, mainly books we'd read as when we were children that had a big impact on us and how we had investigated the landscape of those, those books um, later in life. And so we came up with the title of, of, of Landscape and Literature, and it was only when I saw it in cold print, landscape in literature, mm. I thought, oh, what idiot said landscape. I mm. realised it was me. Uh, because I'm not sure if I mean landscape or do I mean place, mm. or are they the same thing? Maybe we'll, we'll get to the bottom of this. Or the much sweeter, uh, beautiful word that we have here, Taranga Waiwai, mm. which may well indeed um, sort of get to the source of, of, th of what, we're, so. what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I will, I'll make a few observations, I think, about, about well, we'll go with literature, uh, uh, what did we say, landscape and literature, and um, then I'll get Kate to respond to some of these ideas, and we'll go from there. At the end, there will be a few readings, and at the end, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions if you, if you want to. And I just noticed there's no clock. Um, uh, yeah, there is. There is. Oh, good. Well done, Kate. <laughs> Right. Okay. So I do, I do, actually, I'll mention some of Kate's achievements, actually. Um, I've known Kate for a very long time. And in fact, it occurred to me that I commissioned one of your first pieces of writing. Kate had the courage to admit she couldn't swim and had um, only learnt swimming uh, late in life. I said, Kate, you've got to write a piece about that. I actually still can't swim. The, oh. the lesson didn't, didn't really work. Yeah. No, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. If you knew how Kate drives and how she sort of physically functions in the world, that would be no surprise. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, since then, Kate has become really an indispensable voice in, in children's literature in this country, just, you know, as a, as a broadcaster, as a writer... Um, She's written uh, children's um, picture books and books for young readers um, and novels that seem to hover in, in some sort of space between that uh, horrid YA 
category that we were talking about, or you were talking about to Kim Hill the other day, and a more general reader. And um, I, I th you know, among those novels, there's Closed Stranger. I think of that being a little bit more of a adult novel, Kate, than mm. than YA. But having said that, why do we even place these categories on these sorts of things? Um, Anyway, um, you will be aware of the 10 p.m. question. Um, that won a, a whole s slew of awards, including the Kurin International Book Prize for, for young readers in Germany, um, which was a wonderful thing to happen. Um, and, of course, um, Eddie Eddie is her, her latest book, and we'll talk about that too in, in, a, in, a, in a wee while. She's also the editor of um, The Annual with Susan Paris, which is a miscellany of all kinds of writing um, to be disseminated to schools, or at least those schools that still read. Um, and I want, on that point, I do want to mention her, her advocacy for, for writing and reading in schools. You've been doing this, I see Gavin sitting down here. You and Gavin must be perhaps probably have done this more than any other writer I can think of. Um, Just only because we're old. <laughs> well, I didn't want to say that, but, but nonetheless, you have journeyed to schools, you know, right around the country talking about how essential reading and books are. Um, given the abdication of the Ministry of Education to actually suggest literature as a worthwhile activity for our children, uh, let alone find a place for it in its curriculum, or teachers who can understand it. Um, anyway, I can hear a note of grievance entering my voice. <laughs> so I better move on to the topic of this conversation, which is place and story. And I want to begin by suggesting place is as much a creation as story is. I mean, uh, did London exist before Dickens? Was there ever a treasure island before Robbie Louis Stevenson invented that place? Without Dublin, there is no Ulysses. But after Ulysses, what does that D Dublin look like? One becomes a reflection of the other to some extent. Without ancestral land to save from developers, there's no Potoki by Patricia Grace. Without Omaru, there is no Ours de Cry. More strangely, um, without the Hungarian plains, there is no um, Gerald Murnane book called The Plains. Uh, Gerald's never been to Hungary, but this is the way writers cobble together landscapes for their books, and it's a strange amalgam of the Australian plains and, mm. and this imaginary place. Mm. Um, and um, back home again, um, did we ever see or really understand that place in our community where violence is dished out casually and broken homes and broken dreams are piled on top of one another until Alan Duff delivered that place? to us through its broken language. And in Kate's new book, Eddie Eddie, where she writes, and I quote, Eddie maintained a mealy mouth towards the west side of town. It had largely escaped crippled houses, insured roads, mud baths, few schools, no-go parks, bulldozed shops, insurance bastards, dot, 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 end of quote, without knowing anything else about that passage. We know she's describing Christchurch, don't we? And place is inextricably wrapped around the tendrils of story. Place is also a, a writer's collaborator in making the invented appear, appear real. If a reader is introduced to a fictitious character walking along Sinclair Street in Blenheim, they're more likely to believe in that character because Sinclair Street exists. Uh, not only that, 
they tend to, um, they may have even walked that street themselves and will suddenly, as a reader, invest some of themselves in, in that particular um, rendering of, of that moment, which is a fiction. It's a strange collaborative act then between the reader and, and the text where place is remade according to individual experience. For example, all of us, if we were all uh, set, the uh, set the task of describing the hills around Blenheim, I bet we'd all come up with completely different landscapes according to our relationship, our particular re relationship with those, those hills and our language capabilities. Oh, capabilities is possibly the wrong word, but our, our own personal language. Um, so landscape is, is a kind of a personal interaction, I think. Um, we think of it as a generic position, don't we? We think mm. the mountains are the mountains and the hills are the hills and everybody will have the same relationship with them and therefore they exist as one predictable entity. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think, I think we make landscape, we make it up. Place also takes us back to history and characters are just passing through somewhere called Sinclair Street in Blenheim. But that place was once called Waiharakeki, I hope I pronounced that correct. The water of flax, a name that conjures up a confluence of two rivers. In the process of writing, place works on a writer's mind the way a grit of sand does to produce the pearl. It is transactional. And what results is not an accurate representation of place, but a dreamt place with its roots in the real. For a writer, a uh, place is a foundry where the inert and alive spirits grind away at one another. Now, I, I, have, I have lived in many houses in, in different countries, and I've looked out a great deal of windows. <laughs> and every one of those windows should have delivered me to a new place and a new story. Sometimes they have, but there is one place that dominates. And to its windows I return, especially to its kitchen, where most of the living in that house was done. And those windows are at 20 Stone Street, Lower Hut, where I grew up. I returned there, I think, because it returns me to my first view out onto the world. So perhaps I go back there to recover an eye of innocence, a clean eye, so that I might see the world again with the same freshness and astonishment of all those years ago. But... Um, Rather than start here, Kate, because we'll, we'll sort of get onto this, this business mm. of landscape and how we, we traverse it both as writers and readers mm. soon, I thought I'd begin with a couple of lines from a, a favourite poet of mine, Robert Haas, American poet. The poem is called A Talk at Sewanee, and the, the pertinent lines are these. The things they call your influences are the books that introduce you to yourself. The books that introduce you to yourself. I love that phrase. And I thought that is the place for us to begin. Um, so, Kate, what were the books that introduced the, the young Kate de Goldie <coughs> to herself? And which ones did you seek out and track down in terms of the real place in the world? They, they were many and various to the degree that they were um, from many places in the British Isles or in America. And I was basically my reading life as a child was fed by this torrent of fabulous literature, post-war literature for children that came from those two places principally. And that was the consequence of deeply talented people and a very intentional publishing 
industry and what used to be known as lady editors in those publishing houses, um, um, all th threaded through children's publishing, especially since the Second World War, is the work of indomitable, um, incredibly well-read women with a mission. And um, I was lucky enough to have those books bought for me uh, a lot of the time, as well as getting them from the library. And um, the, the really useful thing about owning books is that you reread them. Mm. And that is why, I mean, not everyone can own books, so libraries are deeply important. But, you know, and I count it as a privilege to have had books that I could continually return to. And I'm absolutely certain that's what made me a writer, because without being aware of the lessons, I learnt um, the music of sentence making, the um, meshing of setting and character, and I guess to the sort of shape of story and the notion of plot or tension. So at regular intervals, I would reread certain books for certain things. And I want to say here that these were deeply literary texts. You know, the, the books of that period were written by seriously literary people. It's just that they were published for children. And um, when I started thinking about this, I was kind of surprised that the first thing that popped into my head, and I've just brought it just to show you, because, you know, they're totemic, was The Family from One End Street. And is, has anyone here ever read that series? Oh, great. Yeah. Um, it's a series, and it was, this is a famous book. It won the Carnegie Medal. It's, it's writer and illustrator Eve Garnett. It's allegedly, and, and probably truly, the first um, story for children in England about a working-class family. The father is a rubbishman, and the mother is a washerwoman. Which and, decade, Kate? Sorry? Which decade? It's 1930s. Mm. And, I mean, there's been some criticism of this book in times past because, in a way, Eve Garnett was writing from a different position. So she was writing about this family not having necessarily experienced their world. But you feel, when, as a child, when you read it, that it's deeply authentic. And it's about the seven children of the Ruggles family. And when I first read this book, what I cared about was what was happening to the children. But as the re-readings happened over the years, I became aware of the place much more acutely. And it's set uh, in an unnamed town in the south of England, but, but you can locate it because there's a river running through the town, and it's the Otwell, and the, uh, sorry, the Ouse, the Ouse River, and the town is called Otwell on the Ouse, but it's actually Lewis, L-E-W-E-S, and I didn't learn this till later when I talked to Susan Price, who's um, a bibliophile, especially with children's books, and she has, in her own slightly crazy way, anatomised the landscape of every children's book ever in the history of the world and has file cards on them. So she could pull out the file card on Sussex and tell me exactly where the railway station is here, etc., etc. And in later reading still, when I was um, reading a, a wonderful English series called the Mental Mass series by Barbara Willard, um, it's historical and it's set in the 200 years between 1485 and the English Civil War, and it follows two families working in the Weald um, in Kent and Sussex. So they become, in a way, part of history, even though it's the, you know, their ordinary lives that's being... Um... In fact, the, the stories are about how ordinary people get thrown about by big events, and because they're horse breeders and iron 
mangas or I, you know, smithies, um, naturally their work ends up being part of the wars over those periods. But when I was reading, in later years when I was reading these books, they're set in the weald, which is not that Lewis is the next town or the nearest town. And so these books became interconnected. And I think, and this still surprises me, the deep layered history of place and person in England has always fascinated me. Um, and I mean, I don't have an English drop in my blood as far as I know, but I felt drawn to England when very belatedly at the age of 44, I finally went overseas. And for me, the only way to go overseas was to go to the places of the books. That sort of gave mm. a spine to my travels. And um, I started off by visiting writers that I um, really admired. And one of them is a, a woman called Jan Mark, who has written in all parts of England, brilliant, brilliant writer, died prematurely, tragically. And one of her books, which I admired for its technical prowess, is a book of stories called Enough is Too Much Already. And all it is, is three teenagers wandering around Norwich, talking to each other, and that's how she makes story. And it's brilliantly um, you know, um, managed. And I've read that over and over and used it as a teaching tool. So of course I had to go to Norwich and walk the streets there and sort of be those characters. But most of all, I wanted to go to Lewis and I wanted to go to the Weald. And, I, and of course, if you walk around London, you bump into story everywhere. Mary Poppins is in Kensington. Um, Leon Garfield is walking his characters up Ludgate Hill. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't an inch of that city that wasn't in story. And finally, uh, on about my third trip to um, the UK, my sister came with me, and she too had read the Mental Math stories, and we became obsessed with English cathedrals because they also appear in children's stories all the time. And one of the, my favourite pieces um, from Tom's Midnight Garden, how many of you have read that? A great, great... Voted the Carnegie of Carnegie Medals, this book. Um, it's a time-slip story, and in the story, Tom goes back to Victorian, or maybe Edwardian England, and makes friends with a girl called Hattie. And at one point in the winter, in times past, they're skating down, not sure which river it is, towards Ely, the city of Ely. And there's this astonishing passage where they suddenly see that, you know, Ely Cathedral is called the Ship of the Fens, and they see it as they're um, skating towards it. I haven't managed to skate towards Ely, but I've been to Ely many times, and of course it recurs in other pieces of English literature. Um, but um, Claire and I, my sister and I, decided that we would take a small moment at the end of this book, which is the, about the fifth book in the Mental Mass series, where the family fracture means that the oldest son, so we're in, we're in the early um, 1500s, he has to move away from the family to make his own way and he's going to go to Gloucester. And you have to imagine that there are names, these places, but these people have often never been to them. And they make their way to Gloucester over many, many days. And they do it by visiting mm. the cathedral towns. But they begin at Lewis Priory, which is in the um, family from one end street, and they get blessed by the friar. And then they make their way to Chichester, to Winchester Cathedral, where, of course, they get um, succour and harbour from the monks that are in these cathedrals, although a lot of them have already been sent away because of you know, Henry VIII. And, um, and they finally... And then they finish up at Salisbury Cathedral. So my sister and I did all those cathedrals. Of course, we didn't walk and we didn't have a horse and cart, but we kind of lived the story, or the end of that story, which is a seminal part of the... Um, or a pivotal part of the whole series... 
Magnificent. Mm. Yeah. Long answer. <laughs> you have a, you have a different relationship with place. So you you meet this place initially through yep. the, through these books, and you it's an exhilarating moment where you enter into that space, and your yep. own world is suddenly enhanced and expanded, mm. and so on. Um, but then when you you, you 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 want to hunt down that place, mm. it's it's real place in the world. Mm. Um, I don't think you're going necessarily back just as a pilgrim, particularly if you're if you're a writer. You, yep. You're going back because you want to see how something was made. Mm. Um, yep. You know, here 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 here's the kindling, the real the real place, and mm. and you know, mm. we and then you're looking for the spark, the creative spark that mm. lit the thing. I find that all very, very yeah, interesting. Yes. So so how did that happen for you? And your, oh, yes. your seminal book, Anal and the Detectives. <laughs> yeah, trust Kate to actually have a copy. Um, well done, Kate. Um, My second copy, because the first one fell apart. I got that at a fair. All oh, right, yeah. okay. Well, look, there, there were a couple of books. There was one called The, the Goalkeeper's Revenge by Bill McNaughton, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and um, there was a story there called Tinker Boy. There was, and and there, there were drawings and it was a landscape, I d it was very stark, I didn't recognise it, and I immediately mm. felt sorry for him because he didn't have a lawn like we did. <laughs> and, um, but I, I recognised this animal spirit in this mm. boy. It was, it was, it was some, that, that first little interesting thing mm. that you find some aspect of yourself in, yeah. a, in an imaginary person and, and some magic begins to ex yeah. exert itself. But this book... Emma and the Detectives by Eric Kastner. Does, are you familiar with this? There must be a few. Good on, oh, well done. Yeah, well done. God knows how it found its way into our house in 1960-something. So it was in the public library? No, no. Um, it, was it, was, actual... it was actually bought for me. Mm. Um, I'd love to know how. Well, um, I, I can tell you how because yeah. this is in the 1950s? 60s. 60s, mm. yeah. Mm. So Puffin, mm. that's what was available in bookshops in New Zealand at that point. Puffin was mm. spreading... Classics like that round the world, and oh, yes. that would have been reprinted. In fact, you know that's you know it's been multiply reprinted. Yeah. And we had some really good booksellers in the sixties yeah. um, in mm. all the cities mm. who were really dedicated to children's books. So doubtless someone recommended it. In yes. A shop. Well, the other miracle is somebody took up the the challenge of buying it. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was a, a story. You, you mentioned about rereading, and I would have read this book at least 30 times. Mm. And I, when I was at primary school, I, I was predictably sick once a year, a stomach bug. Mm. And I'd walk home and try not to throw up all the way home until I got home. No one came and got you? No, no. I, I, I would have been mortified if somebody had turned up to get me. Right. Um, no, staggered home along the hedges, and, uh, and after throwing up in the bath... Um, I'd uh, be very light-headed and emo and detectives. I'd sort of read my way back into wellness again. Mm, mm. And I knew the story backwards. And, um, and it was a sort of a story of betrayal, really. Um, the adult world betrays this boy, Emil. Emil is on a train from what's called, it's a bit like what you were saying before about this, the, the writer um, uh, concealing mm. place, um, <coughs> from a place called Neustadt, Neustadt. Um, any, anyway, um, and is on his way to Berlin. And his mother has put some money in, a, in an envelope and pinned it to his lapel. He's to give that money to his grandmother. His grandmother and Polly, his cousin, are waiting for him in, in Alexanderplatz, I think. 
It's about a two-hour journey, uh, which would place it at Dresden. That, that, that's in later years. That's where I, I, you know, calculate. Indeed, that I was proven right. But I'll come come to that in a second. He's on the train, um, and of course, um, this man gives him a piece of chocolate to eat, which he can't resist. Eats it, falls asleep. Uh, when he wakes, he wakes. This, the train is at uh, Zoo Garden. And um, on the platform in the crowd, he can see the man that has given him the chocolate, immediately feels for his money. Money's not there. Leaves the train and follows this man to his hotel. Mm. And, of course, the hotel is an adult world. He can't really enter into that world. At some point, he runs into the detectives. Mm. These are street kids around um, the zoo garden area. And they you know, have an elaborate plan to keep an eye on Grundy's the thief. Mm. Grundy's the thief goes between this hotel and a very, very famous cafe called um, uh, Costa, Costi, Cafe Costi. Mm. And, um, and I'm, here I am in Stanley Street Lower Hut, enraged that this thief is <laughs> drinking coffee on the spoils of Emil's mm. money that's supposed to go to his grandmother and so on. Mm. And um, but he's surrounded by these very street savvy kids. Mm. Anyway, long story short, they 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 find a way to alert the police. The police believe him, and Grundy's is turned over. But Eric Kastner, being the clever writer he is, he was a newspaper man at the time. In the in the story, a newspaper man called yeah. Eric Kastner turns up to interview the kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a way of saying, well, this is how I found the story. You mm. know. Mm. Um, now this this book. Was, was one of the books that was thrown onto the bonfire at Bebelplatz by the Nazis. Mm. Um, Eric Kastner turned up to his own book burning. And it's very typical of his sense of humour um, that he went along to his mm, own book mm, burning. Mm. It was thrown there on the, on the pipe because it was, it was seen as being um, uh, dangerous that, that, that children would, would question that they were kind of delinquents. Yeah, well, they're questioning the accepted order yeah, of things that yeah. parents know best and, and, mm. and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, Happening at this very moment in the United States. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You would think it would have died out. Well, it's happening. Yeah, well, come mm. back to that, actually, Kate. It's happening everywhere. Anyway, when I was in Berlin, I made a, I made a point of tracking down the landscape of this book because I was very keen to know um, more about Kastner mm. and how he put this book together because it had such an impact on me. Um, and um, so, of course, a lot of a lot of Berlin had been destroyed during mm. during the war, and Cafe Costi was mm. one of those places. Mm. He used to he worked on a, on a newspaper, so he had his mornings free, and so he would set out and he would walk across the Kudam near Zoo Garden. Mm. We were living a few blocks away from the Zoo Garden. Mm. So I knew this, knew this landscape very well, then down Nollendorf, I think, Nollendorf Strasse. And then the landscape just peters out because mm. it's all destroyed. People who have been to Berlin might have been to Potsdamer Platz. It's that, you know, mm. that, those modern glass buildings. That's where Café Costi mm. was. To this day, there is a cafe there, and there are fragments mm. from the old cafe that are embedded in the walls of the new cafe. Mm. 
that was thrilling. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. Discover. I had the same thing with Lewis yeah. Priory, which is a ruin now. Yeah, yeah it's, but yeah. you know the tracery. Yeah, um, I think maybe you have to be a writer to, you know, mm. to know how thrilling this is. It's like Hen Carter opening the, you know, two tankaments sort of it's a uh, crypt, it's really. It's sort of it's a concretization of the sort of magical alchemy of you reading it, and then finding it in the world, or the other way around. Sometimes, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, because. I didn't go to Germany for many years, and I was just excited to see Potsdamer Platz because it's in the book, you know. Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, I'll just, I'll just quickly finish this off about Emil and the detectives. So I went to Dresden. Um, the new start, you know, Dresden's divided between the old city and new, new city. His mother was actually, Emil's mother, to make, to make money, is, mm. is washing hair in the front mm. rooms of the house. Mm. Karsten's mother did the same thing. Mm. Uh, the father was a leather worker, but their ambition was slowly to move in these apartments closer and closer to this very desired place, which was just near the bridge over the Elba, where his wealthy uncle had this mm. place. The wealthy uncle's house is now the Eric Karstner Museum. And, oh, um, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah. yes, and it's, and it's full of Karstner kind of bits of humour. You go into this museum... And they're all people of perhaps our, our vintage who read this mm. book in the 60s. And they were from all over the world, you know. Mm. Anyway, there'll be a cabinet and you pull, open a drawer and there'll be an envelope. You're allowed to open the envelope, mm. which I did. And there's a letter that Karstner tells against himself. He's got a copy of this book and he's at something like a, a book signing or something. Mm. And, and he sees this girl walk towards him with her book and he, mm. he grabs it off her and hurriedly writes his signature and it hands mm. it back. She's aghast. He's defaced her book. Uh, but then she sees that he's written in pencil. And Karstner says she was very relieved because she could now erase it with a rubber. <laughs> uh, I mm. love that story. Yeah, know. and I mean, it's entirely consistent. The whole tone of the book is a little bit um, hilarious, isn't it? It's an adventure, but not a scary one. There's a sort of... And it's partly because the children are such a persuasive pack of fellows, you know, of, I mean, mm. they're looking after each other. Mm. And it's a classic children's story because really the adults are banished and the baddie's the adult and mm. the betrayal of the child by the adult is a real children's books, you know, trope. And they, they solve it by themselves, or at least they have the agency to go to the police and get Well, help. yes, and, and, and they sort of mimic the adult yeah. world in terms of organising themselves yeah. and, and, and all that sort of thing. Which is, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. true children's literature. Yeah. What... what, what Two things. You know when you said you see a little bit of yourself one day in a book and you saw that in the um, soccer book, you know. The, uh, McNo yeah, the, the, the Tinker Boy. Yeah, yeah you had a mm, feeling mm. of some communion with that character. Yeah. When I first read Amel and the Detectives, and I think I was about seven or eight, the thing that really intrigued me was on the first page where the mother, Mrs. Tishbourne, mm. is having her hair done. Mm. And that's what my mother used to do with Mrs. Utslag next door. She'd come and they'd use beer and spray it on her hair. And I, I just um, it somehow enabled me to plant myself in the book. It was a familiar thing, having mm. someone come and do the hairdressing at the kitchen table, you mm. know? Mm. But the other thing that blew me away about that book, Lloyd, was, I, I, of course, because I was a child, I didn't realise that it was set in the 30s. Mm. And so Late yeah, 20s, actually. Is that, mm. So it's mm. before Hitler mm. comes to mm. power. Mm. Yeah, okay. Right on the cusp. Yeah. But it, um, but it then takes on a kind of semi-tragic patina when you know that later mm. because you're reading about a place and an innocence 
that can never be there again mm. in Berlin. Well, the Hitler thing enters into the into it in Billy Wilder's film, Emil and the Detectives. Yep. Fabulous film. And that. in the carriage, there's, um, there is a description of some of the other passengers in the carriage by Kastner, but Billy Wilder puts a couple of Orthodox Jews in there mm. as a provocative mm, kind mm, of mm. thing in the film and then quickly bug it off to Hollywood. Mm. <laughs> Any chance 20 Stalin Street will become the Lloyd Jones Museum, do you think? Oh. <laughs> But it's not, it's not nothing, is it? I mean, that, that's a, um, an edifice-like story and well, a site for story that's just lodged in your head forever. Yeah, it is. And I, I, I was talking to Kate about this. When, whenever I've had to write a scene that's in a kitchen, I just cannot uh, think of any other kitchen than the one at, mm. at, um, at uh, 20 Stalin Street. And I think... A lot of living happens in that kitchen mm. and at a young age and when things cut deep and make impressions mm. and, and the views out into the world, the portals are all there. Mm. And I'm going back to the source of language, mm. um, and, of and, course. And character, and one character. way or another. Yeah, Because yeah. yeah. that's where, as a child, you're mm. watching adult interplay, you're listening to stuff that you only half understand. So... It's, you know, I mean, it's kind of the uh, place of story, isn't it? It is, it and, is. And, and I'd argue that the kitchen is the place of New Zealand story particularly because um, that's where everything happens. Well, it's, in, in my case, I'd say it's the birthplace of mm. um, um, imagination, really. Mm. Um, yeah, but... Um, can maybe, I just, can yeah. I ask you something? Yeah. I mean, it seems to me we're quite different in some ways. no. Yeah, well, um, beyond the obvious, in terms of place. Because you at least venture out and come to grips with other places. I mean, you have gone all over the world and sought story, or story has come to you as you've been all over the world. But then that that odd thing that you're talking about still happens when you're writing about, say, um, what's a good example? I don't know. Here, at the end of the world, we learn to dance. Um, Mm. It reaches as far as South America, but it's also mm. in Punakaiki. Mm. Um, but somewhere in there is also 20 Stalin Street, not necessarily mm. physically. But um, so, but you've had a kind of, I mean, I think of you as being adventurous in terms mm. of place. Well, um, what does let, it do for you, another place? Um, well, it, it I'm, yeah, I'm not. I'm going to these places for a specific reason, mm. and I'm led by a particular thing that's mm. in me, which is an interest in identity. Um, but there's, you know, as writers, we are explorers, and we're magpies, and we're stitching together places and, and landscapes. And, you know, um, you know, I think as, as we've lived in the 20th century, we've lived in an increasingly larger world, mm. and we don't just live in the house and the street that we grew up in, mm. you know. God, I begin the day each day reading the New York Times, mm, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But just back on, here at the end of the world, we learn to dance. I have Kate to thank, actually, for leading me to a bit of landscape um, at Punakaiki. And Kate showed me these caves where uh, World War I pacifists lived for a while. <laughs> as soon as she showed me this piece, mm. I thought, oh, Jesus, I have to have that. Kate, do you mind? So it was a bit of a land grab on my yeah. part because she could, she could have, she could have, Easily, and if you'd said no, it's mine, I yeah. would have understood, and yeah. therefore, it wouldn't have been in here yeah. at the end of the world, yeah, yeah. 
But it was, as a reader, it was really exciting for me to see those caves in that book. Yes. You know, so you yeah, sort well, of elevated them and transformed them interestingly and saw them differently to me. You know, mm. So there's all sorts of exchange going on anyway, isn't there, through the reading? Yeah, and it's an interesting... It doesn't happen that often where the place, you know, sends me back into mm. the story. Usually it's the other way around, that, mm. that the story sort of spreads into right. a place. I was going to ask you something, actually, Kate, because I, I, mean, I was going to mention um, uh, Sol Billow. Um, mm. he, he, the great American novelist, was struggling with writing a particular novel one time, and then suddenly he heard a voice from childhood. Mm. And, it, and it was this kid that used to run around saying the same thing all, 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 all the time, and it was, hey, have I got a deal for you? And, and, and suddenly the south side of Chicago bloomed mm. in his mm. ear. Mm. And I was thinking how actually in writing, it's not like we're looking out the window and thinking, oh, I'm going to place no. a story there. It begins with voice and leads us to place. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you ha have ever had an experience like that. I have. And, and I should say here actually that um, having been friends with Lloyd over 30 years now, the notion of voice was something you articulated for me. I knew what it was, but I didn't have the name for it. You know, I, I realised that that's what pulled me into story. But as a writer, um, Lloyd once gave me a fabulous quote that he'd written down about what voice is um, in a story. And ever since then, I've, you know, that has been primary for me. Um, uh, yeah, when I was first writing... In, in that very kind of usual way, um, the voice was always the first person um, because it had a kind of an insistence and a throat-grabbing kind of feeling about it and, and an urgency that you wanted the story to have. Mm. But since then, I've been... I mean, I am kind of really love the third person, partly because it feels like the ultimate old story voice and um, it's technically more... Um, it's more difficult, really. Um, well, for me, anyway. But um, I think for me, Lloyd, the voice is always about the character thinking. That's mm. really what's driving the story. I mean, I have quite limited literary skills, really. And um, the, the one thing that I keep doing is um, bringing, bringing the reader back to the head of the character. My favourite thing is to have the character walking or driving and thinking, and that's how a lot of the story gets told. And I'm sure that says something about me, because for you know, many years I never went anywhere and just read books. So um, there was, it was mm. sort of about the head. Well, there's a huge amount of interiority in, yeah. in, in Eddie Eddie, and, and it's, it, when I was reading it, it struck me that um, there are two bedrocks in, in, in the book, one, of course, is The Christmas Carol, mm. Dickens, um, that, that provided you with a structure and, and, a, and a few ideas about, mm. you know, um, characterization. And the other is Christchurch. And one of the challenges that, that writers face is how to find something um, that can kind of um, collect the idea of place. Um, and, and I think you did it with Eddie because... The, this 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 character, you know, his thoughts. He, he's almost sort of breaking down before you. He's he's disassembling. There's, he's things are just pouring out of him. Um, it's like his self is crumbling, which is in the parallel, of course, is Christchurch. You know, with mm. it, it falling out of itself. Mm. So you, you you've sort of personified a 
a difficult thing, I think. Um, mm. Kate, I just realised the time. It's 12.40 and we mm. actually organised four pieces to read to you. Well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so, but maybe maybe you could read that piece you, you wanted to read about. The little bit of the yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. In contrast to you, it's really... But, but similarly to you, 20 Stalin seats, street for you. Well, for me, it is the topography of Christchurch, certain houses, certain streets. I really can't set a story anywhere else. I tried to set the 10pm question in Lowry Bay in, Welling in Wellington and the characters were walking down the, the zigzag, zigzag yeah. to the bottom and when they got there they were in Kashmir and Christchurch <laughs> and I just gave up. Yeah. Um, and and it's, yeah, it's absolutely yeah. central. Um, and of course when Christchurch crumbled, it was... I mean, it was devastating on so many levels. But in a very selfish way, I thought, far out, this is going to perpetually disrupt how my writing works. So I'm finding my way back through that, I suppose. Mm. But um, the, the piece that Lloyd suggested to read is set in a New World supermarket. And I suppose, um, I mean, that is a place mm. Of, mm. in life. Um, I seem to live there. I go there at least once every couple of days. And... Um, I've always wanted to set a story in a supermarket, but it just became a scene. And it's a place for Eddie where, in a funny way, he's found a new community because he's abandoned some of his old ones for various reasons. And the other sort of voice in this book is um, his friend Toss Moore, who's forever in his head, in Eddie's head. And um, so a lot of the stuff that Eddie tells you is, in con is sort of about explaining Toss. And Toss... Um, hates supermarkets because he thinks they're just, you know, which they are, um, um, monopolies and, you know, exploit their producers and pay their labour crap. But we need them and we're actually hostage to them. Um, and Eddie, has, Eddie agrees with Toss, but he's found that the supermarket is something else for him. Toss was fully wrong about the supermarket. It wasn't a terrible place. It was marvellous, a great clockwork universe with dozens of moving parts, a glorious, edifying cooperative, a new world. It was an alternative family, at least, encompassing multitudes unlike his own extended family, which now comprised just an uncle, a first cousin once removed, and a second cousin who lived in Timaru. They were an etiolated clan, barely worthy of the name. His supermarket family, though, it was full and fabulous, Thrillingly ordinary and lunatic. Brad, the butchery apprentice, for instance, who could rap lyrically on lamb and beef cuts, mincing methods, and the underappreciated beauty of offal. Bernadine, tiny and wrinkled, who moved like a wind-up mouse. She worked every possible shelf-filling shift to get away from her husband and could provide in-the-moment coded commentary on high-maintenance customers. Elifosio, the bakery manager, Whenever they saw Eddie, they enveloped him in a lengthy hug and begged him to join the New World Touch team. Marcus, the liquor manager of indeterminate age, shy and prone to stuttering, who had blurted to him one day last December that he was flying to Wellington to hear the Messiah. Eddie had been astonished on so many counts. That did actually happen to me in the New World. And Shimura in the deli, beautiful as the day. Sometimes he bought ham slices or scotched eggs, just to watch her wielding the tongs, weighing and wrapping, handing over packages with a gloved hand and a spectacular smile. And of course, the trolley boys. He watched them on coffee breaks. They were fierce and determined and wrenchingly humorous. Each had his own collecting system and strange navigational path around the car park. They were almost balletic with their trolley trains. 
and long-suffering with the ruder clientele who roared across their paths in high-up cars. Not a flicker crossed the trolley boys' faces. They had been schooled. They all had, never to show the slightest exasperation, even to the most imperious of matrons, of which there were plenty, by the way, on the west side of the ragged city. Yeah. I was thinking uh, what you were talking about, about third person. It's an authorial voice that's riding in over the top there yeah. um, and, and placing mm. Eddie in that, in that thing, yeah. Yeah. which is a, a, a great advantage, really, to have. I quite like that. You can make a larger world and you, exactly. can, and you can arrange it accordingly. Yeah, yeah. And, but you can still have the intimacy with the interiority. Exactly. So it's what, is it yeah. what they call close third person? Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 I know these things instinctively, but never not, not always what they're called. <laughs> yeah. But Lloyd, can I ask you, um, you said something about Aim, in Emil and the Detectives about um, meeting Kastner in the story because mm. he's a newspaper man, mm. and you said, and that sort of gives a rationalisation for why the story is being told. And that's something that you've always talked about. Um, Lloyd, Lloyd often talks about his books as he's writing them or the co- concept of them, which is always so interesting. And, but one of the things you're always looking for is the reason why the story mm. is being told. Well, I think stories have to have an urgency. Um, and so that brings to question, what's the relationship between the narrator and mm. the story mm. he or she is telling? Mm. Why? Mm. Uh, how has that person come into that material? Mm. Like, and and Kastner is answering that question by mm. saying, well, I was tidying up the the bits and pieces of that story as a mm. newspaper man. Mm. Uh, he didn't really need to have need mm. to do that, but... You recognise it as a writer. Oh, yeah, yeah. If, if, definitely. Um, mm. it's, it's, um, and I don't, as, a, as a child, of course, I, didn't, I just accepted that, mm. that that's all part of mm. the story, but once you become a writer, you know, it's a bit like mechanics knowing how cars work. You know mm. how how this book is operating. You're mm. looking at its internal logic and structure and, and what's the spark and why is it being told? These mm. are important questions, I think. Mm. Um, and, and to readers too, mm. I think. You know, um, and, th- and that question of yours, who's telling the story, is always there for me because of you. When I, when I start a book, I sort of now can't do it unless I really know the reason for the, for the mm. text being put down. And I was writing this book and thinking... Who's really telling it? And something had to happen halfway through because of the because of what mm. you you'd said. It's mm. very it's really interesting having writer friends. Often you don't talk about writing, do you? But every now and mm. again you do. Mm. And um, I, I mean, I, I am definitely grateful to things Lloyd has articulated over the years that have you know stuck with me. Can I ask you another story about place? Uh, another question. Sure. I was just going to say, though, that that, that third person, um, authorial voices, of course, what operates for Dickens and, and Christmas yes. Carol. Yes, so, so in that way, mm. um, um, there are little coded echoes mm. of Dickens all the way through mm. there. Mm. Um, Lloyd, you go to places um, that have definite landscapes, but also particular cultures and particular moments of turbulent history, um, Mr Pip. But I'm thinking of biography. Oh, yeah. And um, you went there, and you say there's usually something that's led you there. Mm. And it wasn't so much the place. It was the fact that the place had been absent from the world mm. for um, 40 years, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you went there and 
With Kate's husband, by the yeah. way. <laughs> six, for six weeks in 1990, when there were, uh, there were still faxes but nothing else, mm. we had a very young child, two young children, and a fax came through one day, and it was like buried treasure mm. describing what was happening. Um, but so when you got there, what, did the place have an effect on you? Um, but it was, or was it the sort of stitching of people, place, and culture and history? It's a huge question, Kate. Yeah, and it's no, 10 we to got 1. Time. Yeah, answer it in two <laughs> uh, sentences. Well, look, you know, I, I studied politics, so I was very interested. Um, mm. And I studied Marxism and, and, and so forth. And, you know, at that time in our lives, we had thought that the Iron Curtain would be there for forever and a day. Mm. Mm. And Albania was, was sort of the last mm. brick in the wall, really, uh, to give way. And it had been removed from the world's. Mm. Um, view yeah. for decades mm. and and when Foz and I got there um, you had this sense, people stared at you we went we went to villages, they hadn't seen another foreigner, they hadn't seen a foreigner for a half a century and they just mm. stared at us and mm. and we went through all the camps and we interviewed mm. you know terrible stories terrible situations, it was a traumatised population, mm. they'd been through tremendous trauma um, um, when did the spark of story happen there? Um, well, they had the system, a biography, um, and it's, it's, it was a way of keeping records on, on everybody in the, in the country. Mm. And, um, and they were sort of, you would get to write your biography to some extent, and the last thing you wanted to do was have some sort of um, uh, genealogical link to... Mm a previous generation mm. that filled positions of power. Mm. So your 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 biography was was um kind of a fiction. It was a it was a fiction and yet it was a fiction that had tremendous impact in, in your circumstances, mm. your day to day mm. circumstances. Mm. So it was the first time I think that I realized how amorphous um identity is. Mm. It can be what it needs to be at any mm. moment in time. And um, I think it was that particular mm. thing. And hearing that uh, Enver Hoxha had a double, mm. that was the key. Mm. Uh, and that really sort of set things alight. Mm. But look, it's, it's, it, it, I think it's question time, uh, if anyone has questions. Yes, there's a question there. <clears throat> yeah, Lloyd, I'm fascinated by the idea of place. You and I grew up surfboard riding. I wondered whether you'd ever thought of the oceans and the sea as a place. Oh, absolutely. Um, um, well, in, in this book, uh, my latest book, The Fish, the sea is it's pretty much a character. It's uh, a character and it's a major metaphor as well. Yeah, yeah. As I said in conversation with Kate the other night, it's, it sort of represents the subconscious, uh, I think. You mm. can see the lid of the sea, but you can't plummet its, its depths. Um, but um, but Lloyd, can I just remind mm. you, you, Lloyd wrote a fabulous essay for um, Susan Paris and I for Annual 2, oh, right, which yeah. is called... Yeah. About body surfing, wasn't it's it? It's about body... We, we asked him to write about body surfing. I, I just can't remember what the title is. But um, I've, used it, I've used it to teach with because it's... Um, well, the voice is extremely sort of conversational and matey. So it's interesting to show young writers that. But Lloyd makes the, the sea an absolute character in that. The sea has 
a sh the waves have a shoulder, the sea has a face. And it's like you're making friends with the sea or discovering it. It's really potent. And if you haven't, if you haven't read it, it's, it's marvellous. And it's, it's totally about his love and affection, but told in a, in a, in a way that implies it rather than um, is explicit. Yeah. Yeah, there's, a, there's, there's Davis, I think, talking about the relationship that surfers have with the sea, which is also different again, mm. which is a curious sort of dance. Um, mm. And surfers are really good at reading the ocean, mm. Mm. at reading the weather, um, tides and all this sort of thing. It mm. becomes a very intimate part of your life, doesn't it, Dave? It, mm. um, Do you well, still surf, Dave? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? Colleen. Hi. Um, we often hear at the moment that um, young people need to read themselves and their own places in books, and I totally agree with that to a point. But um, like myself, you both grew up reading of other places and other people and and I sort of think that story is all about finding out about the big the big wide world and, and how other people think and how other people feel and reading about other cultures and, and, and getting empathy mm. Um, mm. in there as well. I'd just like to know as writers what your opinion is. Well, Kate said it... Um, Yesterday in, in your talk, you said, well, yeah, we, we read to, to have something reiterated in ourselves, but we, but we also read to escape ourselves. Um, and we do have this great ability um, to enter into other spaces and, and, and into the skins of other people and, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, like, in, you know, 1960s Lower Hutt, here's this... this According to today, you know, the way the rhetoric is today, mm. I shouldn't be able to understand these kids because, look, they dress differently mm. and men are wearing Homburg, uh, Homburg mm. um, hats and, mm. and, uh, and so on. It's just uh, absolute nonsense, of mm. course. But it also overlooks the fact of the reader as the maker of the story. There's mm. no doubt about that. Um, that we read ourselves into a story. And it doesn't matter where it is set, you know. You could could be a chibi's, you know, um, things fall apart. It's mm. a story set in 1950s Africa. Mm. I am there. I understand mm. these people. Mm. Um, and, and, the, and the text, good writing makes that possible. It sort of, mm. it, you enter into it, uh, or it invites you into it. Um, and and you, then it enters you. And it enters you. I mean, particularly, I think, when you're being read to, Kate, you yeah. know, you, yeah. if you're being read to, it enters you and it passes out of you and you have remade it, yeah. as, it, as, it as it leaves you. There's some, and it's just coming right back to landscape as well. Mm. I think the same thing happens. It becomes sort of transfigured mm. in, in, in mm. through language, through, mm. through your writing about mm. it, you know. Yeah, and, and the inevitable way that we make binary all these issues. Um, there's overcorrection, especially in children's publishing. Of course we need diversity across children's reading and we need all the different New Zealanders to find themselves on the page. And, you know, publishing's trying to address that. But for me, there would be utter poverty um, in, in a worldview if a child only had the mirror half of the mirror and window equation. 
And for sure, when we were growing up, I mean, we, we've journeyed hugely because of the books we were reading. And I will never forget the moment where I read The Runaway Settlers. And, and Elsie Locke was naming the Taramako, the Terrible Cow River, you know. I couldn't believe it because, you know, every summer I rode along it um, in Governor's Bay, etc. And, and, and that's special and priceless. But, I mean, both things have to be there. Of course they do. And also, I think what's behind this, this idea of affirming to the exclusion of other things, is the idea that children may be or will be baffled and frightened if they mm. don't immediately understand what they yeah. read. And I think we have to accept that reading is also often about not understanding and being patient and learning how to read. Susan um, Paris was talking about it yesterday, about how you approach a poem. You know, its language, you know, talked to its ultimate, and it's not always explicable, but that's, it's not about things being immediately explicable. Slow down, um, you know, be patient with um, text, and, and, you know, and that's being lost with our kids because of all the other things that are going on. Well said, Kay. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. The, this, this, it, it, not necessarily having to understand. Mm. Um, it's not like a comprehension test, um, mm. and you can re-engage with it, and it still lives in you in mm. some way. Like often, if I'm feeling a bit flat in, in terms of writing, I'll read Anne Carson, the mm. great Canadian poet, and some of her some of her poems are very, very difficult mm. um, in the sense that they don't really. Um, declare themselves no. um, but you have this funny sensation of having understood something it just sort of flares mm. up and, and dies in the very same moment that mm. you recognise that you've yeah. finally understood something it's a, isn't that enough isn't that a, you know, a, a rare kind of a yeah. experience and also you, know, you have to practice reading I mean the, first, the, the people who first listened to Schoenberg you know, were just baffled mm. by this, uh, the textures and the harmonies but now we listen to Schoenberg and as a culture, we, you know, we, he sounds melodious in a way mm. that he didn't then. So I think it's the same thing with reading. Um, when I was um, a teen, one of the books I read over and over again was called Dinky Hocker Shoots Smack, which was by a fantastic um, American writer called M.E. Kerr, who'd had a whole life writing underground lesbian stories before she published for children. And she has a character, and she's making a good point about how we, we read the, our political enemies too um, narrowly, and there's a character called P. John Knight, who's gone, he's got a socialist Marxist father, and he's become right wing, but he's a very funny character, and at one stage, he stands up and gives a talk in the class, and no one understands him, because he doesn't have the liberal voice and ideas that, you know, they want, and he says, don't understand me too quickly, and it's a, it's a quote from somewhere, but I don't know where, I, I have known, but I've forgotten, and, but that stayed with me forever, I mean, it's a mantra, as a writer and a reader, isn't it? On that uh, lovely point, I think we have to end. Okay. It's one o'clock. Thanks, Lloyd. <laughs>